This is an Occult Confessions special report, part three of our three-part series on plagues. Today's episode, The Plagues of Egypt. The story of the plagues of Egypt comes from the book of Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch, or first five books of the Old Testament, and is part of the God of the Israelites, Yahweh's initiative to liberate the Israelites, also known as the Jews or the Hebrews from their overlords, the Egyptians. This happened in an undisclosed ancient biblical time, more than a thousand years before the Common Era. The central antagonist is an unnamed pharaoh, only ever called Pharaoh, with a capital Pharaoh. And while there are guesses as to who Pharaoh might be, these can only ever be guesses. There is in fact very little historical basis for the existence of a community of enslaved Jews at a place called Goshen, the community where the Jews were said to have lived during the events of Exodus. Although most scholars do believe there is some truth to the account in Exodus, Perhaps the antagonists weren't Egyptians, but some other nation who had enslaved the ancient Jews. Or perhaps the Jews were mischaracterized by the Egyptians and so eluded documentation. In any case, there is a kind of logic and coherence to the plague narratives that calls out to be believed, both from a religious and scholarly perspective, despite a lack of archaeological or documentary evidence. The central protagonist is Moses, a Jewish boy set adrift on the Nile, discovered by an Egyptian princess, and raised in the Egyptian court. After Moses killed an Egyptian slave master for beating one of the Hebrews, he fled across the Red Sea to Midian, but then God appeared to him in the form of a burning bush on Mount Horeb, also known as the Mountain of God, and Moses decided to listen to God and go back to Egypt to be God's agent in negotiating with the Pharaoh to free the Jewish people from their enslavement. Moses told God he was not an eloquent speaker. And so God appointed his brother, Aaron, to assist Moses as his spokesperson before the Pharaoh. Aaron went to meet Moses on the mountain of God. Together, they shared news of God's designs with the Israelites, and then they set out to have an audience with the Pharaoh. What followed is arguably the most famous mythological account of plague in the Western world, as Yahweh, God of the Jews, punished Pharaoh and the Egyptians for refusing to liberate his people. I use the word mythological in its folkloric sense here, not to doubt the historical accuracy of the story of Exodus, but rather to say that this is a story that is believed to be true by certain groups of people. While there is little archaeological or documentary evidence, as I've observed, Its location in the far reaches of recorded history make it less likely that we can definitely discover such evidence, and so the lack of evidence is not absolute proof that these events never took place. Still, the story employs clear narrative devices that reflect intentional structuring by a storyteller as opposed to a strict reporting of the facts. On the other side again, scientists and historians have demonstrated that there is an environmental and biological logic to the progression of the plagues. Today, we're talking the myth, the story, and the science of the Ten Plagues of Egypt. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors. As with our last episode in the plague series, and indeed with uh, the whole plague series, I am operating without my alchemical actors in the room on account of we are all under quarantine here in the state of Maryland in the United States of America. Uh, To address that situation, uh, what I've done is I have asked several of our alchemical actors to weigh in uh, on some key questions related to the plagues, so we'll be checking in with them periodically as the episode proceeds. Uh, And we also have got some actors at home with uh, some some fairly good voice equipment uh, who have done uh, the voices for us to uh, keep us sort of in in the same general pattern of how we do things. So uh, we will be hearing some uh, mythological reenactments Um, along with uh, working through the science and uh, storytelling of the plagues. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. 
I've been very fortunate. Uh, all the alchemical actors, uh, we have been very fortunate to have uh, a, a nice uh, crew of folks join us on Patreon uh, in the last couple of weeks during this period of quarantine, um, and also economic hardship. Um, so, so we're very grateful to the following folks for uh, signing on to Patreon. Brenna M., Sarah J., Luxa Strata, Daniel S., Kaja, and Bethany W., we understand that this is a difficult time and that uh, there's a lot of economic uncertainty out there. Uh, and so uh, that's why we're, we're bringing you these uh, plague episodes without any, any heavy-hitting uh, Patreon pleas. Uh, but we do want to say a word of thanks uh, to those folks uh, who are able to contribute. Uh, and, and we certainly understand if, if uh, folks are trying to uh, hold on to the pennies uh, these days uh, on account of uh, all the uncertainty out there in the wide world. Speaking of which, uh, before we begin on the episode today, I, I, I sort of want to trace the trajectory of my plague episodes. Um, so I, I decided to do three of them so we could sort of hit a different note with each. The first episode we did with Dr. Hatkoff uh, was an exploration of plague uh, from a very research-heavy uh scholarly perspective. The second episode I wanted to do something was that was sort of uplifting. So Julian and the Black Death, um, when we talked about um, how plague is not necessarily uh, designed to bring out feelings that we are the victims of, of some divine wrath, uh, but rather that God loves us. Uh, so that was uh, hopefully uplifting to, to you all. Uh, and now this last episode on the plagues of Egypt, uh, it, it may sound a little odd, uh, but I intend for this to be a, a kind of uh, lighthearted, more comic approach. Uh, I figured at this point in in all of our quarantine, we could use uh, something a, a bit lighthearted. Uh, and, and actually, if you look at the plagues of Egypt, um, nine out of ten of them uh, are, are just kind of annoying. Uh, okay, well, so maybe eight out of ten. Uh, only two of them are, are actually deadly. Um, the, the rest of them are, 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 are sort of, uh, yeah, just, just perturbing. Um, and, and I think there's kind of a, a comic quality to the structuring of the plagues. Um, so we're going to have a bit of fun today with the story of the plagues, but we're, we, we've also, I've done, I've done my research as I always do. Uh, so we're going to be bringing you, uh, some, some, I think, interesting points of analysis to, uh, better understand this story, where it comes from, uh, and, uh, and, uh, how we can better, uh, utilize it in, in our lives today. All right, let's get started. The plagues are organized into three triads. Uh, uh, let me step aside from my script for a second here. Yes, they, uh, they, we can look at them as being organized into three triads, uh, but in the course of the episode today, we're going to actually be looking at two ways of reading these uh, plagues. You can either read them as three sets of three plus one, or one set of seven and one set of three. So it all depends on how you want to organize them, and and, and this sounds uh, both like a math and and like some kind of uh, like you need a spreadsheet or something. Um, so it does not sound like fun. But uh, when we when we get into this, uh, it's it's actually going to reveal a lot about how we can understand each individual episode of of plague and and how these fit together into a grand narrative. So so stay with me here. Um, three plus three plus one or seven plus three is actually going to become, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, kind of a fun fun game. Uh, when it comes to reading the plagues. So let's start with three plus three, plus three, plus one. Each triad, all those threes, mirrors the others with similar features in the first, second, and third events of the triad. So uh, if, we, if we break the plagues up to three sets of three, we'll notice that the first term in each of the three sets has something in common. So the first term, first event, always happens in the morning when Pharaoh is on his way to the river. So every three plagues, we're going to go back to the river. The second event in the triad takes place in Pharaoh's palace and starts with a warning. The final event in the triad, so three times over, happens without warning. Each triad also has its own theme. The first three plagues relate to water. The next three plagues bridge human and animal, the human and animal world. And the last three plagues, excluding that final plague uh, of the death of the firstborn, the last of the three in the triads is airborne. The various calamities are organized to demonstrate God's control over the natural world, that these occurrences have not happened at random. While today we might see this as the hidden hand of a narrator organizing the events in a way that's both more persuasive and more engaging, it could also be read by a believer as a sign that God, and not nature, authored these events because they follow a supernatural pattern. 
In a prologue to the plagues, Aaron and Moses visit Pharaoh and ask him to let their people go. What we often forget about this story is that initially, Moses isn't asking for the Israelites to be liberated. God just wants them to be able to go into the wilderness for a few days to worship him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Hey, what's Moses doing here? Uh, I'm his moral support. But if you're doing the talking, then isn't he your moral support? Uh, watch this! Ha! A serpent! He turned his staff into a serpent! Which has made me completely forget the question I was just asking him. Wait, I've seen this serpent trick before. Wise men, you do this thing too! Ha! See that? My sages can do the same. Serpents all around! Hey, Moses' moral support! What's your serpent up to? Is it unhinging his jaw? Ew, it's eating the other serpents. Like a cannibal. So gross! That's so gross! In the initial story of the staffs turning into the snakes, the word snakes isn't an especially accurate translation. Serpent gets closer to the point. The actual Hebrew term used is tanin, denoting something more like dragons or sea monsters, and the swallowing of the staffs is foreshadowing for the swallowing of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And although the Pharaoh's team is described as magicians, they're actually more accurately called wise men or sages. Egypt was renowned for its wonder workers, and with the transformation of his staff, Moses is marking himself as among their ranks, but superior insofar as his serpent swallows all the others. We'll leave the symbolic analysis of all these fallacies to you all to work out in your spare time. And so, with the serpent episode out of the way, Moses and Aaron initiate the first of three triads of wonders or signs that the God of Israel visits on the Egyptians. We tend to read these as plagues, but actually, uh, from a historical standpoint, these would not have been read as plagues per se, again, because many of them are not deadly. They were wonders or signs to Pharaoh, uh, intended at least initially to persuade Pharaoh that the God of Israel was both real and powerful. So the first triad. The first triad is themed around water, and it began with Moses and Aaron meeting the Pharaoh at the river for a morning ritual. How high is the Nile risen this summer season? Let us check, and perhaps we will even inundate our toesies a bit on the banks of a feeling frisky. Wait, who's this? Moses and the man who's morally supporting him. And they're walking along the riverbank towards me! And none of my guards is stopping them! I will not trouble myself. They're only armed with one staff between them. That can sometimes be a serpent. And I executed my magicians, got new ones with bigger staffs! The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters. It's turning all red and bloody. There will be no toesy dips for me today. Come on, would you look at that? Now all the fish are dying. It stinks like friggin' blood and dead fish. You're the worst. I'm going back inside my house. Seriously, you guys are the worst. Seven days passed with the people digging around the edge of the river to get their water, and then Moses and Aaron returned. Said the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, and on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frog shall come up on you, and your people and all your servants. Come up on me? You mean like, crawling my hair? It's not enough to have them all over on kneading bowls and ovens. They've gotta come up into our face too? Wow, 
I mean, wow. The word plague is also used to describe the frogs, but this is unique and happens only once in the initial set of plagues. Otherwise, the word plague is left out. They're described, as I've said, as signs and wonders. Pharaoh negotiates to have the plague of frogs lifted, but the meaning of this negotiation... Is Pharaoh acknowledging the power of Moses' God, or just trying to rescue his people from the frogs? It's, It's undetermined. Pharaoh's magicians succeed in duplicating both the turning of the water to blood and the production of frogs. How they manage to turn the water red is a bit of a mystery if Moses already turned all the water red. I don't know how they found some unread water and made it red. Anyhow. Also, how could anyone tell the difference between the magician's frogs and Moses' frogs? I mean, they're just frogs coming out of everywhere. So, whose frogs are whose? Maybe the Egyptian frogs walk like they were in a Bangles music video. Children of the 80s? That brings us to the end of the first triad. The last sign of the first triad is biting insects, often translated as gnats or lice, but they were probably meant to be understood as something more like midges for our Scottish listeners and other nations that have midges. I just remember midges from a trip to Scotland. Those guys are rough. Ow! Also, ouch! The frogs were inconvenient, especially when they piled up in heaps and died, which is pretty much the grossest thing they could have done. But these buzzing things, they're they're, they're totally annoying. Feels like we're caught in an escalating pattern here. Ouch! Seriously, you guys are the worst. I mean, seriously! On this wonder, the magicians fail, which reveals that Moses is working with a power greater than magic. They won't be able to match any of Moses' wonders again. And that brings us to the second triad. The beginning of the second triad finds us back at the Nile River, one bright and sunny morning as the pharaoh was making his way to the water's edge. These guys again. I don't want to have any beef with you, pharaoh. Do you want to have beef with me? No. Nobody wants any beef. So, here's the deal. Did you let my lord god's people go? What? No! Then we've got beef. And you've got flies. Wait, what? Flies. I don't see any flies. Flies, tomorrow. The plague of flies changes the formula set up in the first triad. Aaron's no longer using his staff. Rather, Moses predicts with a time delay that the flies will appear the next day. Also, while the first triad visited all the people in Egypt, the flies will only afflict the Egyptians and not the Israelites in Goshen. The flies persuade Pharaoh to allow the Egyptians to conduct their sacrifices to their god at home, rather than in the wilderness. But Moses is not content with this compromise, saying that the Israelites' sacrifices will offend the Egyptians, who will stone them. They need to go three days' distance to perform their rituals. Israelites preferred to sacrifice goats and sheep, which was not part of Egyptian practice. The flies are so thick among the Egyptians that the pharaoh relents, but only on the condition that Moses will pray to his god for him and lift the plague of flies. But God is not content. The sacrifice in the wilderness is not enough. He wants his people free to serve him, which probably translates to something like regular worship. What now? Let my people go. Still? Or else what? Pestilence! What kind? Beasts of the field. Guess it could be worse. (laughs) Pharaoh! Pharaoh! Come quick! My beasts of the field! They're all... dead. Dead? Oh, pestilence. I thought you meant pestilence. Pharaoh, let my people go. It should be dawning on you that I'm really not about that. As I toss these ashes from the kilns into the air, let it cover the Egyptian people with boils. Way nasty. Everything's always just so gross with you guys. 
Pestilence like the flies only afflicts the Egyptian livestock. Boils are the first plague to afflict the people directly, and again, only the Egyptians. Moses casts dust in the air, which covers the air and causes painful skin eruptions. Moses' handful of ashes, significantly ashes and not sand, is a reference to the kilns where the bricks were made that the Egyptian slaves hauled to build Pharaoh's various structures. The kiln ashes lend the boils a feeling of poetic justice. The magicians make a final appearance here, unable to work their magic because of the boils. Not only can't they compete with Moses' god, they are incapacitated by him. This is also the first time Pharaoh does not harden his own heart, but rather God directly intervenes and hardens Pharaoh's heart for him. The previous five chapters ended with the words, the heart of Pharaoh became hard. Beginning with the boils, they shift to, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Commentators stretching back from before the medieval period through the modern day have argued that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the last five plagues was punishment for Pharaoh refusing to acknowledge God in the first five plagues. Pharaoh was stubborn and had his chance, and so God takes away his free will to make sure he punishes Pharaoh good and hard, without giving Pharaoh any opportunity to repent on account of the heart hardening. It seems as though it's no accident that this shift happens exactly in the middle of the unfolding signs and wonders, but we'll find out if that's actually true in the third triad. The third triad are plagues that arrive by air or atmosphere. Everyone inside! We're being bombarded with sky ice. It's so icy and also coming out of the sky. This is a really dangerous development, but it's nice that it's less gross than the dead frogs and blood water. Hey, you, herdsman, uh, th- don't just stand there getting hit with sky ice. Run for your life. Of the initial nine calamities, only the seventh, the storm of hail, is explicitly denoted more than once as a plague, meaning to strike or to smite, and it is the only one of the first nine that results in a loss of human life. Within the Bible itself, the ten plagues are not called plagues, as I mentioned, but signs or wonders, with the exception of the frogs, which get one mention as a plague, and the number ten is never assigned. That's something we've done retroactively. The plague of hail gets special attention and enjoys a longer description than the other plagues. The hail is unique in that it allows the Egyptians an opportunity to acknowledge God and save themselves. Only the stubborn ones who refuse to believe in the God of the Israelites despite the water turned to blood, frogs, midges, flies, pestilence, and boils, will suffer by being outdoors when the hail begins to fall and strikes them dead. This was also the first plague which concludes with Pharaoh acknowledging Yahweh and apologizing for sinning against the Israelites and their God. There's an argument that the plagues actually have, as I mentioned at the beginning, two different structures. We've been talking about the first structure, three triads, three plus three plus three, followed by a tenth plague, one. Some scholars believe that the plague of hail is the conclusion of a seven-plague cycle, seven plus three, followed by a three-plague cycle. And it's possible that both structures are intentional, so that the original writers intended for there to be both three initial triads and for the last three plagues after hail to function as a different sort of triad, pulling the killing of the firstborn more neatly into the scheme. After the seventh plague, God spends time explaining why he visited the plagues on the Egyptians in the first place. To Pharaoh, he sends the message that the purpose of the plagues was to show his power and spread his fame, to persuade the Egyptians of his power. The seventh plague, a significant mythological number, is the conclusion of this mission. After all, according to Genesis, on the seventh day, God rested, and Exodus and Genesis are very neatly tucked together within the Pentateuch. 
Pharaoh went into his house to deny God in the first plague of blood. The seventh plague brings this full circle by saying that those Egyptians who hide in their houses during the hail prove their belief in the God of the Israelites by shielding themselves from his wrath. But God has more to do, and it will be done over the course of the remaining three plagues. To Aaron and Moses, he explains that he is performing these plagues so that the story can be passed down through the generations. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is intended to keep this performance with an audience stretching through the generations of the Israelites' descendants from being cut short. As Old Testament scholar Jonathan Grossman points out, in the contradiction to the theory that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the second five plagues, the text actually says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart after the plague of hail. So God's intervention in the plague of boils is actually the outlier in the first seven, with Pharaoh choosing for himself otherwise, and God choosing for Pharaoh only in the last three. Since God is choosing to harden Pharaoh's heart in the last three plagues, these last three are not for Pharaoh any longer. Pharaoh is not the audience. God has proved his power to the Egyptians and made his point. Now, God is working on behalf of posterity and preparing the Israelites for the Exodus. In short, God's audience is no longer the Egyptians, but the Israelites and the future. And that starts with the eighth plague. Moses. Locusts! The locusts are the first time that Pharaoh's servants plead with him to bargain with Moses. Pharaoh, uh, give it up, man. Uh, Just let his people go already. We've got plenty more people where those people came from. And if we run out of people, we can always just go ahead and enslave us some more people. There's people all over the place. The locusts are described as arriving in such numbers as to blot out the sun, linking locusts with the subsequent plagues through the theme of darkness. This goes back to the theory that the last three of the ten are a hidden triad layered on top of the widely accepted structure of the three triads plus one. God sends the locusts on an east wind and removes them with a west wind. The east wind also figures in the destruction of Pharaoh's army by the Red Sea, but the locusts still aren't persuasive enough, and so it's on to the next plague, which reads a bit more like a parent grounding a teenager. What's next? Darkness. How long? Three days. Cool. This is the divine punishment equivalent of being made to stand in the corner, except... The corner is actually a closet, and the door is locked from the outside. The three days of darkness foreshadow two events. The imminent killing of the firstborn, which takes place at the midnight hour, and the flight of the Israelites across the Red Sea in the dark of night. The Egyptian worship of the sun god is also inverted here by the darkness. The dark represents death to the Egyptians, and the number three has great mythological significance, especially in the context of the three triads of plagues. After all, Moses and Aaron's initial request of the pharaoh was three days to perform their sacrifice in the wilderness. Let's do a little plague science about the first nine before we move on to number ten. The science of the first three triads, or nine plagues, hinges around an abrupt change in climate. The plagues may be narratively organized in triads because the triads actually represent real-life events borne out by a scientific progression. An abrupt shift in climate allowed for a microorganism to flourish in the Nile, turning the water red and causing the first plague. Different scholars identify different microorganisms with the bloody water. The list includes some sort of algae, anthrax spores, a bacteria, or a virus. The red water was actually a red tide that killed off the fish and drove the frogs from the Nile. More recently in the United States, a red tide 100 miles long plagued the Gulf Coast of South Florida, killing the fish, eels, dolphins, and turtles. The microorganisms in a red tide emit brevitoxins, paralyzing and killing sea life, and these toxins can even get into the air and poison human lungs, sending them to the emergency room. The stench of rotting frogs and fish then drew 
the midges, flies, and other insects of the third and fourth plagues, not to mention the fact that there were no longer fish or frogs to serve as predators consuming these insects. The flies and midges, or mosquitoes, brought disease, causing the fifth and sixth plagues, namely the death of the livestock and the boils. As far as the third triad or airborne plagues, the climate shift that brought the earlier plagues is also directly responsible for the violent hailstorm, winds carrying locusts, and a sandstorm to blot out the sun for three days. Building on the narrative established by various scientists and scholars, and Joel Aaron Kranz and Deborah Ames Sampson construct a detailed timeline of the plagues. So uh, they take this sort of classic story that scientists have been assembling about how the plagues came together, and they, they create their own version that uh, makes some interesting uh, amendments or changes to, to that original plan. Unseasonable climate warming, or something like what we in North America call an El Nino effect, along the eastern Mediterranean coast, focused the brunt of plague affliction on the Egyptians, and uh, Goshen, uh, being further inland, was spared. We've seen similar events in different places and times across the globe. In Africa, India, South America, and China, changes like this have caused massive rainfall, followed by infestations of mosquitoes and locusts, and created a red tide. In coastal Peru in 1925, changes in weather brought rain, frogs, dragonflies, mosquitoes, dengue fever, and malaria. The plagues would have taken place over the course of about three months, starting at the vernal equinox with a month or two passing between the first and fifth plagues. The death of livestock, the fifth plague, would have likely been either a West Nile virus or Rift Valley fever brought by newly hatched mosquitoes biting the livestock. What's interesting about this theory is that the herdsmen tending the livestock would have been spared because they would have been exposed to these diseases 10 or 20 years earlier during a similar climate warming event. But the livestock with their shorter lifespans would not have been alive at that time and would have been vulnerable. Okay, now I've got to give you a little warning. The thing I've got to say about the boils next is pretty nasty. I mean, like profoundly gross. Skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. It'll make the hair on your head tingle and, and maybe the hair in other places too. Okay, so these two folks, Aaron Krantz and uh, Samson, argue that the best explanation for the boils, the sixth plague, would have been burrowing fly larvae hatched from their eggs, which got into the skin of humans and animals alike. The specific condition is called fernuncular myiasis. Ugh. Okay, we're back. When the warm air moving inland from the Pacific collided with the cooler spring air of Egypt, it would have caused intense storms, including hailstorms. Storm winds could have carried locusts back and forth through Egypt. In contrast to the sandstorm theory, Aaron Krantz and Samson proposed that the condensation of moisture caused a dense advection fog blocking out the sun. Now, what is advection fog, Rob? I can hear you asking me. I'll tell you. Advection fog happens when the air is warmer than the ground temperature. The cold ground cools the water vapor in the air, causing it to form into fog, which can linger for days. And so, darkness. I'll do that again, uh, for those of you who are visually impaired when it comes to uh, meteorology. Uh, so, uh, picture the ground. Uh, the ground is cold, and warm air uh, is sort of like has rushed into the region. Now, because the air is warm and it's also full of like evaporated water, which we can't see, right? Invisible water vapor is filling the air. Uh, as the air passes over the cool ground, it starts to cool off and the water starts to leave that uh, invisible water vapor form and condense into fog as it gets closer and closer to becoming a cloud and then it rains, right? Um, so that fog is a product of the warm air with the water vapor cooling. Got me? Advection. It's Olivia, your grandmaster, coming to you from my bedroom, fun quarantine times. Um, so with this episode about the plagues of Egypt, Rob asked me to comment on what I thought would be the 11th plague, if there were to be an 11th plague, which is super fun. 
Um, so here we go. Let's just dive on in. So everyone in Egypt, you know, has gone through all the 10 plagues, you know, the water is still blood, there's locusts flying around, there's fleas, you know, firstborn sons are out of here, sorry, unless you you did the lamb's blood. So everyone's suffering, but, you know, Pharaoh is still holding strong. You know, Pharaoh's like, no, 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 my people stay here. Well, you know, my slave stay here. (laughs) And um, so God, you know, commands everyone to get out of their houses and participate in Egypt's first countrywide talent show. That's right. Everyone is mandatory mandatory attendance, you know. Everyone has to attend, sit through, and also perform at least a 10-minute set. You know, it's got to be a decent, you know, chunk of talent. And, um, you know, any talent you want, but you have to participate and you have to attend. We're looking at, like, you know, an Exodus time, probably a population of, like, I think I was seeing online anywhere from, you know, 2 million to 4 million, but like, you know, we have no idea. But, um, you know, even if you think of like half the people <laughs> didn't survive, you know, the 10 plagues leading up, then, you know, you're still looking at 2 million people. That's a long ass talent show. So in the words of one of my favorite songs from the Christian camp I used to go to every single year in my childhood, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, oh baby, let my people go. Uh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, everyone. I hope you're staying safe and inside and trying not to, you know, lose your mind with all this boredom. You know, you can always reach out, talk to us. We love talking to you guys on Instagram. Um, So, yeah, stay safe, guys. You know, black heart, black heart. Bye. Okay, here we are. We've made it to the 10th plague. This is the most famous most deadly, and most difficult to explain of all the plagues of Egypt. After the plague of darkness, Pharaoh tells Moses to take his people and go. Just take your people and go already! He banished Moses from his court on pain of death, but yet again he reneges on his promise, and so God sends his last plague, and the plague most worthy of the name. He instructs the Israelites to paint lamb's blood over their doors so that the angel of death will pass them by. We're uncertain exactly what supernatural entity does the actual destroying of the firstborn. The text is ambiguous. God is described as one who will strike down the firstborn of Egypt, but a destroyer will keep away from the ritually marked homes of the Israelites. The destroyer surfaces several times in the Old Testament, killing either the Israelites or their enemies. In the story of King David, after David has sinned against God, he asks to be punished. God offers David the opportunity to choose from three punishments, one of which is a plague lasting three days. The plague arrives at the hand of an angel who all but destroys Jerusalem. The destroyer angel is never named, and so could be attributed to one of the archangels, or perhaps Azrael, traditionally regarded as the angel of death. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there is not a house where there was not one dead. In the tenth and final plague, God acts alone without the mediation of Aaron or Moses. The choice of the firstborn is derived from the ancient notion that the first in any series represents all to come. The brutality of murdering Egyptians simply by virtue of their Egyptianness marks the Egyptian people as an evil other in contrast to the Israelites and unifies the Israelites as a unique cultural group. The science of the Tenth Plague is a trickier issue, in large part because scientists have to account for why only certain members of the family could be afflicted. J.S. Marr and C.D. Malloy developed the theory that the previous nine plagues had so weakened the health of the Egyptians by wrecking their food supply, disrupting transportation, and surrounding them with parasites and vermin that, from an epidemiological or science of disease perspective, the death of the firstborn was inevitable. 
Uh, Schoenthal, Marr, and Malloy argued that the firstborn died from lethal mycotoxins coming from moldy granaries. This is a very clever idea. The firstborn, they said, had dibs on food in both the human and animal kingdoms, and this accounted for the death of the firstborn across the species as they were grabbing hold of these rotten grains. Writing with Ira Friedman, Marr argued in a 2017 article that the Tenth Plague could have been the work of multiple epidemics, including salmonella from rotting frogs, malaria from swarms of mosquitoes during the stinging insect plague, leishmaniasis from sandflies, which attack the, and this is a disease that attacks the liver, spleen, and bone marrow, and could actually take weeks to months to fully manifest, uh, and blooms of anthrax spores, which killed the livestock. Significantly, the livestock that didn't die but were merely infected were brought indoors during the hailstorms, providing close contact between animals and humans and creating an opportunity for cross-species contamination. Finally, the darkness in the Ninth Plague may have actually been an eye disease, a complication from one of the epidemics causing transient blindness in its victims. So really, they peg all of the uh, various events happening during the plagues to some kind of, of disease. Aaron Krantz and Samson narrowed down their culprits for the Tenth Plague to only two suspects, West Nile virus, uh, which would have continued from the pastures during the Nile to the more populous areas of Egypt and killed many of the children, with the older generations being immune, and also Rift Valley fever which I've mentioned earlier, and, and I'll give you a little bit of an understanding of it now. This is a blood-borne pathogen and can be passed from infected animals through mosquitoes. It actually has some fascinating correlations with Marin Friedman's uh, list of, of how different diseases may have uh, caused the plagues. An ocular form of RVF can cause temporary or permanent blurring or obscuring of vision or blindness. A neurological form can cause headaches, hallucinations, and loss of memory. Perhaps this is how Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and a hemorrhagic form, which is fatal in 50% of patients, causes subcutaneous bleeding, vomiting of blood, and bleeding from the nose and gums. With the exception of Marr and Malloy's poisoned grain theory, though, most of these scholars aren't especially concerned with the problem of why these diseases targeted the firstborn. Aaron Krantz and Sampson say that breastfeeding may account for why younger siblings survived while older siblings died. In theory, a baby who is breastfeeding benefits to some degree from the mother's immunities. The older generation, having survived previous plagues, would have also had immunities that their children did not. But God's destroyer seems to have struck the firstborn regardless of age or species, complicating this idea. Marin Friedman's notion of multiple epidemics suggests mass death, with the firstborn being singled out for narrative rather than historical reasons. Ultimately, our intrepid scientists, whose work is to be credited for its incredible ingenuity and creativity, often fall short on the details. The prologue with Moses, the magicians, and the staffs turned to serpents is entirely ignored. The magician's ability to replicate Moses' miracles is also unexplained, as well as the strange timing of these plagues, which lined up with Aaron and Moses' decrees. The red tide on the Nile was supposed to have affected all of the bodies of water in the land, whether or not the Nile fed into them. And this is more difficult to pin on a single microorganism. And both frogs and flies fled at God's command when Pharaoh relented. I can't fault scientists, theologians, philosophers, historians, or literature scholars from wrestling with the story of the plagues of Egypt. It's a complex mystery, full of bizarre and fascinating narrative details and devices. Like all good mythological texts, the seeming simplicity of God's ten plagues sent against the unnamed Pharaoh belies the true depth and beauty of the story. Just under the surface, the story becomes a vast labyrinth, rewarding us with insights but denying us anything like a final authoritative reading. And that's just the kind of story we like best, here on Occult Confessions. Hello, everybody. Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's great to be back. Yes, yes. It is. We're not. We're not, we're not back. Ba- we're we're in, at home right now. Yeah. Actually, like on our bed. Yep. But... We're just we're just hanging out, but we're pretending to be back. Don't tell anyone. And look, I'm James, 
the captain of the table. <laughs> yes. And here with me is, listen, it's... It's Shannon, the, the Instaquisitor. You better believe it. And w- we're here to talk about... What are we here to talk about, Shannon? <laughs> well, we were assigned to talk about the best and the worst plagues. Yes, we were given an assignment by Rob, the Supreme Hierophant. Yes. About, yeah, this, what you said, the, yeah, the, the plagues. Exactly. So, uh, uh, James, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I would like to start by saying that I personally interpreted this assignment because what he said was the best and the worst. Yes. Plague. So I was thinking, like, what was my favorite and what was my least favorite, right? So I'm thinking my favorite by far is the frogs. I love the idea of the frog plague because it's not super dangerous or like, you know, threatening. I think it's just like annoying, surprising and like weird. And it's just so funny to me to think about God being like, I'm going to try weirding him out. And like it was only his second thing, you know, like he was like, oh, I'm going to turn the water to blood and then I'm going to. I'm gonna set frogs loose on all of Egypt. You're gonna you're looking in your bed, you see a frog. You look in in your in your clothes drawers, you see a frog. You you go outside, there's frogs there, but they're usually there, but then they're they're in your cup when you go to drink and they're in your underwear. And you know, it's just it's just weird. It's just weird. <laughs> you grab your cup to drink and they're in your underwear. Yep, you grab your cup to drink and they're in your underwear. And <laughs> they're just I just love that plague, and I wish we saw more of this from Mr. God. <laughs> Mr. What, God. What about you, Shannon? Well, well, see, the way I interpreted it, I thought it was like, the best plague was the worst one, if that makes sense. The best was the worst, all right. Well, because which one was, uh, I don't know, if, I, if I'm going to do a plague, right, I want it to be really sad <laughs> okay i think i, I think what you're saying i think what you, i get you i get you you're I'm, like the what the most effective one right yeah the most yes <laughs> thank you so i thought the uh death of a firstborn child was probably the the most sad one yeah it's definitely the saddest one i mean you're, you're right it was the last one so anyways uh, i guess let's go ahead and do the the worst plagues. The worst ones. Yeah, yeah. So would James be allowed to go first? <laughs> yeah. So my least favorite has to be the lice. <laughs> For the reason that if I was there, you know, I'm a hairy guy. I'm Greek. And it's just, it would just be the worst. I think the, the lice, <laughs> God could have done better. I like the frogs. Give me more frogs. <laughs> I don't like the lice. The lice was the worst the one. The lice is the worst. Like the, the just fire and thunderstorm on. one. No, well, like, he he does locusts. <laughs> he does the flies. Leave the lice out of it. It was too many bugs, okay? I mean, I guess he had to give the frogs, all like, enough bugs to eat or whatever, since he gave, made all those frogs. He has to give them bugs. But That's a good the, point. You know, I don't like the lice. They're just not my favorite, that's all. They're just not my favorite. In fact, they're my least favorite. And yeah. I'll stand by that. <laughs> what about you, Shannon? For me, I think... I don't know. I know it's like the second to last one. But darkness for three days. I mean, I guess, was it just like nighttime? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's parts of the world where it's just like dark for several days at a time, right? I think. Sounds right. Like, where is it? Like months? Just, I don't know. On the pole somewhere. Like Pittsburgh? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Like on the... On the Pittsburgh. More near the axis of the world. Yeah, there's like... Yeah. In the... In the, in the yeah, I don't the, know. The far north and whatnot. The sun will be like constantly setting. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I can get a little spooked at night. But, oh, yeah, you get spooked. Um, Yeah. That's what I have. <laughs> so the, you, you think that's the, like the least effective one, or is like that's just your least favorite one? I guess the least effective one. The least effective is like the Egyptian. Well, they didn't have lights back then. Did they have fire? 
They had fire. They most definitely had fire. Yeah. I don't know why I asked it like <laughs> like I didn't know. I know that they had fire, Rob. Sorry. <laughs> Rob's just like shaking his head at home. <laughs> it's like this is what happens when I leave them alone to record. <laughs> yep. Well, that's the best and the worst of the Egyptian plagues by James and Shannon. Doing our voices today, we had Sean Priest in the role of Aaron and uh, Andrew Mims playing the Pharaoh, also Brandon Walls as Moses. Uh, our sources today include the origin of the Old Testament plagues, colon, expo- explications and implications, by N. Joel Ehrenkranz, M.D., and Barbara A. Sampson, Ph.D., in the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. Also, The Structural Paradigm of the Ten Plagues Narrative and the Hardening of Pharaoh's Heart by Jonathan Grossman in the journal Vestus Vetus Testamentum, 2014. Carol L. Meyer's Commentary on Exodus, the Exodus Syndemic, uh, Next source is the Exodus Syndemic, colon, the Epidemiology of the Tenth Plague by Ira Friedman and John Marr in the Jewish Bible Quarterly. Also, the World Health Organization's page on Rift Valley Fever, which we will link to our website. (sighs) I want to thank you all for staying with us uh, through time of quarantine. It uh, has been an interesting experience uh, for us and, and I'm sure for you as well. Um, we've had wonderful conversations with listeners and, and are continuing to have wonderful conversations. Um, I've heard for some, from some folks uh, providing some excellent insight on uh, Rosicrucianism, past and present, and some interesting theories on uh, Crowley's ideas on, on the Rosicrucians and uh, different interesting conflicts between the Rosicrucians and the Masons. Um, and, and just, you know, there's all sorts of general fun things, just goofy posts and, and memes and, and little notes. And, and uh, we've, we've just had a sort of outpouring of affection, I think, um, coming from our listeners, and and I hope we've been returning it in kind uh, because we we feel just the same about you all. And uh, I think in this time when we've all been sort of stressed to our limits, uh, the community that's uh, we've been able to pull together here has has I have been a source of comfort. It's certainly been a source of comfort for us, um, and I hope it's been functioning that way for you as well. Um, and 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 that's a large reason why I've decided, to, to, despite the amount of effort required uh, and the fact that I've had to continue to work uh, through through this this uh, time of plague, uh, to do these extra episodes because um, because I do want to be there and, and keep you all company if I'm able to uh, make my small contribution uh, to our collective effort to get through uh, what is uh, an unprecedented and, and difficult time in human history. Um, so we're still here and uh, we're going to be here as far as we're able to Um, it's my plan now to uh, (laughs) now that I've said that uh, to go ahead and take two weeks uh, off we're going to do two dark weeks we have not done two simultaneous weeks off in uh, quite a while but we're sort of up against it as far as uh, the quarantine conditions are concerned uh, and and we've just put out a whole bunch of content uh, so we're also up against it uh, just energy and time wise um, so we're going to take two weeks off uh, but when that period is over uh, we hope to come back or we will be coming back we will absolutely be coming back after our two dark weeks uh, the only question for me uh, which is, is really a matter of uh, how the state of Maryland is responding to COVID uh, is whether or not we'll be able to get the alchemical actors into one room uh, to do our discussion Uh, but even if we can't do that uh, we'll do something similar to what we did today um, and and have the alchemical actors weigh in at different points in the story Um, so we'll we'll still get some commentary and and we'll definitely still have some of our we'll have our reenactors I think we've managed to put a system together where that works out just fine Um, so uh, taking two weeks dark uh, but uh, we will be back so thank you all again Uh, I hope you're being safe, and I hope you're able to stay sane in this time of plague and quarantine. Signing off, your host, Rob C. Thompson, Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors.